All right, so this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 uh, to 17. And I wanted to, uh, wanted to read that text for us this morning. Uh, so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 9 to 17. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. May God bless the reading of the word. Uh, this morning we look to a text that is uh, quite pivotal, but it's also quite foundational uh, to the overall epistle written to the Corinthians. And I've entitled this sermon Division in the Church, Division in the Church, because that is what Paul is addressing. At first, he makes his appeal uh, to be unified uh, concerning the testimony of Christ, to be unified in all speech and knowledge, not only what we learn, but how we communicate what we learn one to another, to be unified in our sanctification in Christ, unified in the election, uh, what the Word of God essentially says to make our election sure, make our calling sure, to be unified as a church. Uh, he says all those things, and then he is confronted with a conflict. And so he begins this section to correct the Corinthian church's assault against the faithfulness of God. That's where he begins, to correct uh, the Corinthian church's assault against the faithfulness of God, the, the true, and also the true ministry of the <coughs> apostle. Because when he originally begins... He, he begins by introducing himself in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We talked about that last time we were together. But I say it's an assault against the apostleship because you see some other names that not only creep in, but those names creep in to make it seem as though that there is an apparent conflict among those individuals. And so Paul begins to address uh, the fact that there is no division in the church and he calls for this appeal uh, based on the fact that Christ sent him to proclaim the truth to this church. But also you see that there is an assault against the true nature of fellowship among the saints of God. And so he began with what will be a familiar transition for you uh, as we work our way through Corinthians, where he begins when he says in verse 10, now. Now, calling attention to the fact that he is about to bring forward a transition away from some encouragement, some exhortation, and he's transitioning to a corrective point. And so we see that here and we see that specifically in verse 10. So he begins his transition from the greeting to addressing the conflict. And listen, Paul didn't call for an agreement rooted in agreement's sake. He didn't say, let's just agree to disagree or let's pretend we all agree. He didn't call for the appearance of agreement while respectfully, quote unquote, disagreeing. He called for total agreement 
and complete solidarity and unity in the body of Christ surrounding the reach of salvation among the saints. Because look at what he says. Now, I exhort you, brethren, he calls them brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the source and substance of their whole faith, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, that you all agree. He called for total agreement, unilateral agreement, but agreement based on convictions, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. So total agreement and no divisions. But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So that there is an element of within individual sanctification, there is a collective element that is rooted in what Christ has accomplished by his saving work and also within our sanctification. So that is what Paul is calling the Corinthians to. So he didn't call for the appearance of that. And he came to them. He came to them. That's an important point. He came to them through this letter to encourage them to abstain from rivalries and division. So when he comes to them in this letter, he wants them to not only be encouraged with all he said in the previous verses, but he wants them to refrain from being rivals and being divided. He wants them to defer to one another in the sense of considering the wealth and good of others, just as he wrote, as we concluded Romans. So you see how these epistles and even in Paul's mind and the Holy Spirit, how it all uh, ties together by God himself, who authored the scripture by the divine author. So he came to them. That's important, first and foremost. But he came to them in the name of the Lord, for it says it there. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come to them based on the years of ministry and experience that he had. He didn't come to them on that basis. He did not appeal to their location. He didn't appeal to anything else. What he appealed to was the saving and sanctifying work of Christ that he had written in the previous verses, as we have read the greeting in this particular passage, that were a sure evidence of their faith. That's what he came to. If you look at verses two to four, that is his appeal to them. And that is the basis of his appeal to them as he addresses a budding conflict that is about to arise and seek to destroy the life of unity in the body of Christ. So he comes to them in that way. So he wants total solidarity, total unity based on what Christ had accomplished. Not reducing that to only what Christ had accomplished, but all that that implies. And he comes to them in the name of the Lord. So he appeals to the saving and sanctifying work of Christ that he had written before as that sure evidence. And then he wants that to produce the outworking of love and unity that they have with and for one another. So he wanted them in verse 10 to all agree. He wanted them to all agree. Now, this is not like how many of these hirelings try to uh, resolve conflict today. Paul wants them all to agree. He didn't promote pragmatism to instigate conflict. He didn't say whatever works to instigate the conflict and let the conflict fester and brew. He called for unity in Christ and singularity in the mind together and not only thought, but in practice. So he called for unity in Christ, singularity in the mind together, and not only thought, not only did he want them thinking the same things, 
but he wanted them to practice the same things. And then when they reached a situation like the one we're looking at now, their judgments would agree. So they would judge things. They would discern things and judge things in a very unified way. So that is what he, how he begins in, uh, in verse 10. And so he begins to address the specific points of the conflict first, and then he addresses who brought the conflict to him as we begin to progress through the text. But listen, what was happening here was not only disagreements. It wasn't only disagreements. What happened was a certain disagreement born in schism, fracture, disunity among the saints. That's what was happening here. Because Paul says that he says in verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you. I have heard about you, my brethren. So he addresses them as brothers. Their response will indicate whether they're brothers or not. But he certainly believes that the evidence of them being in the faith is there when we look at the first few verses in the greeting. He believes all that is true to this point. So he appeals to them as brethren. He appeals to them as brethren. My brethren, by Chloe's people. That there are quarrels among you. And he says, now I mean this. I'm not just saying in the generic sense that there are quarrels. I'm going to specifically tell you what the quarrel is. I'm going to tell you what you're saying to not only instigate the conflict, but what you're saying as the basis of keeping the conflict going and the foundation of the conflict. And so he explains their very words. He quotes them in the conflict. And he says that each one of you is saying. So this was total uh, total division, total disagreement for those who were responsible. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am I of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. You often wonder where people say that they find it impossible to come to agreement and true unity among the saints. And I believe that they say this because they are looking at their lives in the places they attend, and that whole place is marked by schism, fracture, disunity. So when you come to them and you call them to a place of total solidarity and unity, they can't understand that because where they are, it's I of so-and-so, I of so-and-so. Their lives are marked by schism, identifying in men, hiding in men. So when you say, I want you to be unified, they look at you like you're crazy. They've never seen that before. They've never seen people actually live by the conviction of God's word and be convinced that he is the sole head of the church. They haven't seen that, which is why they say there is no perfect church. They don't want the church to be perfect. They are the reason the church isn't perfecting in holiness. But listen to me. Paul brings the division forward in a very personal and a very particular way. Paul is specific He's very specific. And listen, he addresses it early in the epistle. He addresses it right after the greeting. He doesn't deal with all the doctrine first and then say, oh, by the way, I hear there's a conflict. He says, I'm greeting you in all these ways that are true about you. Your testimony has been made sure. I'm watching your lives as I hear about your lives. It seems to be in the proper direction. But there's something brewing. There's something brewing based on what you're saying and doing. That is striking against your testimony and striking against your love for one another. And so Paul addresses it. 
But listen, he addressed it so early because if it is allowed to run its course, it ruins the very life of the church and it ruins the very life of the saints. It ruins their lives. This kind of thing we're referring to ruins the lives of the people. Paul did not seek out this conflict. He wasn't looking for he wasn't he wasn't in the business of conflict resolution for its own sake, nor did he instigate the conflict and add flames to the fire. In fact, the conflict was brought to him. He says in verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you, my brother, by Chloe's people. So Chloe's people bring this conflict to Paul concerning the church in Corinth and says that there are quarrels among you. Instead of Paul instigating the conflict, adding flame to the fire, instead he received the news of the conflict from Chloe's people. Why? Because Chloe's people were there. It's very simple. Chloe's people were there. Chloe was a believer in the church and her people were as well. So I've heard so many say, well, this is some outside societal group of individuals. No. For what reason would Paul receive testimony about the church from people who aren't in the church? He's receiving testimony from Chloe, a believer in the church in Corinth, and essentially not from her directly, but her people. And he loved her in Christ and loved her people enough to say there is substance to this conflict. Because it's coming from the testimony of saints. We know that she's a believer because first Paul received her testimony. That's how we know she's a believer. That's how we know the people are believers. We know this isn't gossip as some like to dismiss to cover up sin in the church. They like to dismiss everything as gossip and slander. But that wasn't the case. What was said was true because she had the spirit living in her. And so Paul also had God's spirit in him and he recognizes there's substance to this conflict and I need to give it a hearing. So I'm going to approach the people who are inciting the conflict. He received their testimony as one who was there in the church. If the modern church would just do that part, it would be so much further. Along. The people who are there are the people who are swept under the rug when they say, I've noticed some things here. I noticed that we're not holding fast the doctrine. We're not unified. We have schism, fracture. Uh, conflict. False teachers are coming and speaking into our church. When the people speak up, they're there. And the and the and often the so-called shepherds who are allowing it are there as well. But their eyes may be blinded to it. And so we can't reject the people who are there. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's writing this letter remotely and he's saying Chloe's there and her people are there. And he and he confronts it. She was among those in the church. But listen, she was not guilty of their sin. So if the question is asked, what gives the right for her people or her to go to Paul? They weren't guilty of the sin. They weren't guilty. In fact, they were the positive side of Matthew 7. They took the log out of their eye. They, they, they were not obstructed from trying to remove the speck from their brother's eye. They recognized, listen. We're remote from this. Con we have nothing to do with this conflict, although we are in the life of the church. And this conflict is brewing, Paul. And so they go to him. They were not guilty of the sins of the Corinthians in this regard. So Paul received their testimony. Paul received their testimony. It's a simple biblical principle. 
out of two or three witnesses or from two or three witnesses, as I paraphrase it, let every word be established. Let every word be established. You know what Paul didn't do? He didn't go into damage control mode. Paul didn't go into damage control mode. He did not go the way of plausible deniability, citing the fact that he wasn't there. So he didn't have to deal with it since these were all, quote unquote, godly people in the church at Corinth. That's not what Paul says. Paul didn't lower the standard of the Corinthians sanctification and say, well, at least they're not like the Corinthians. At least at least they don't act like the Corinthians in the local city in Corinth. Paul didn't tell them to get over it. Paul didn't tell them it was none of their business. Paul did not say, how dare you criticize a church affiliated with my apostleship? Paul doesn't answer in any of these ways. So spare me from these people who are saying they're like Paul and they don't hand they can't even handle conflict like Paul. But they're like Paul. Paul was not like the egomaniacs of the corporatized modern evangelical machine who from sea to shining sea steamroll all dissenters and hastily throws every secular PR tactic to avoid the helpful biblical scrutiny that comes with maintaining true fellowship. They steamroll you if you dare speak up. If you say I've noticed some things that are raising up against the unity of the life of the church, they will steamroll you. Well, why? Because they are the factions. They're not trying to eliminate the factions. They're trying to raise up the factions. Paul does not criticize Chloe and her people as discernment hounds. He doesn't say, oh, your discernment is in the way. He didn't criticize them as having an axe to grind in the Corinthian church. And Paul could have done this because, listen, his name was thrown in the middle of the conflict. The people were worshiping Paul. So the issue wasn't they were treating Paul poorly at first. They will do that soon enough by the time we progress through this letter. But I believe they do that because Paul refused to bend the knee to this form of human worship that was about to take place in the life of the church. He wanted nothing to do with it. So they went from flattery to slander. But he could have. He could have went into damage control mode because the people were saying, I am a Paul. And they were saying it first. I believe sequentially Paul is saying what they're saying, what he heard them say, and the factions are listed in order. I believe it is that precise. Paul is not being generic or general when it comes to these things. But imagine this. Picture this. Just, just picture this for a moment. Paul took the Christians... Paul took the Christians because, again, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. But he took the Christians at their word. He believed the Christians in the middle of a sinful conflict. He said, well, you're believers. You love Christ. You're coming to me because you love the church. 
My name is in it, so you could have just lined up with the Paul faction and been all the better for it and pretended to speak for me. But yet you come to me because you want to see the church unified. You want to see what Paul wrote in uh, the first five, six verses. You want to see that actually take place in the church. And so he met this issue and those who raised the conflict head on. He met it head on. He didn't preach generically about unity. And then hope that the power of the word would have its day. Although it will, and it does. He went to them specifically. And listen, went to them in a way where now it's timeless. Because he went to them in the power of God's spirit, recorded in scripture for all time, for all to see. So it's not like there was a backroom meeting that we didn't have clearance level for. It was, I'm putting this conflict, this is God's spirit. I'm putting the conflict, the conflict resolution, and I'm putting the end of the conflict in the scripture for you. Praise the Lord for Chloe and her people. Praise the Lord for Chloe and her people. I've, I've thought about that as I've studied this text. And I remember a little bit of time ago just reading through it and beginning to just think about this passage even more because I've dealt with it a few times and I really just came to the thought, praise God for Chloe and her people. We thank God for that because in Chloe, we find someone who cared for the church because Paul identifies the people with her and then her people had discernment in Christ to say, you know what? I don't want to see this conflict continue. They cared about the church. They cared about the church. She was not mocked as some lady amongst men who did not know any better. She was not mocked in that way. She was received by the apostle. Listen to this, because she had already been received by the Lord. She had a voice because she was in Christ. She had a voice because she was his. And if she's his. then she had every divine right to go before God's people and say, this is what it is. But praise the Lord. And her people were received by the Lord. But listen, this wasn't only one fight amongst those who were sinning in their divisions within the church. Paul said there were quarrels. There were quarrels. That means that there were fights. He tells us both what they were and how they begin. Because listen to this, when you see what they were and how they began, it is almost simultaneously both the cause and the effect. It's literally the cause and the effect. What they're saying and what they're doing is both the cause of the conflict, but it's continuing to keep the conflict going. And I think that is why so many people are lost in factions, schisms and division. They're lost in it because they're trying to, if they know something about it, they're trying to find the cause. Well, the cause, you're sitting in the cause. The cause is that you're a part of it. The effect is all that comes from it, and round and round we go. It is simultaneously the cause and the effect. One might say, yes, the cause is the sin nature. I most certainly agree. But the cause of a conflict is to raise up the conflict itself. That is the cause. And the effects just continue and continue and continue. And some people will never leave a conflict because they can't readily identify the cause of it. 
They say, well, I don't, I don't know how this began. I mean, this is just the way things are. But no, it's not supposed to be that way. And that's what Paul is saying. The issue is what you're saying first. I'm going to get to what you're doing. But the issue is your the issue are the factions that exist in the church. That's the issue. He doesn't just go to what they're saying. He doesn't say, well, all four of those guys are godly men. I suppose we can just line up behind them and pretend that everyone's divided. No, he says the issue is raising the factions to begin with. That's the issue. That's the problem. And what then ensue will uh, what will then ensue will be conflicts and quarrels. But the, the sense and idea in which this is used is this verbal continuous strife. This verbal continuous strife among the people, which was about words and actions. It's the idea of wrangling about words and wrangling about the people in whom you find your identity. It was a heavy dose of partiality. You see it. The people being partial against one another and being partial to individuals who were actually biblically and salvifically united. They were united. And it was a deceptive war, a deceptive war waged against the Lord, his church, the saints, and particularly, listen to this, to give the appearance that the men were also at odds serving these factions and not Christ, the head of the church. It's why they put Christ in a separate faction. This is a deceptive war. It's to say that all these men are divided and somehow Christ is then divided. And yet we have to figure out if we belong to the Christ faction. I think today it takes a tone more in the reverse. And the tone I believe today it takes is the appearance of men who are not sound in the faith, who are not united to Christ, making them appear to be united and lining up behind them. But it's all the same. It's all the same. Because we ought not be lining up behind people for the sake of lining up behind people. These men, by those who were sitting in this way. So not the men themselves. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and certainly our Lord of Lord and King of Kings, Christ, had nothing to do with this. Had nothing to do with this. But these people, by those who were sitting in this way, were erecting the names mentioned as the heads of the church. And they were presiding in the imaginations and deceptions of the people. Because that's what personality cultism is. Presiding over the factions. And the effect was people were hiding in these factions to lend credibility and status to be conferred over those who belong to these factions. So it was an exercise in imagination. It was all imagination, just as it is today. In modern evangelicalism, when you line up behind these men, it is all imagination. It is smoke and mirrors. If you're not truly behind the living Christ and everyone not unified in him, sinful as it is, it is still an imagination. It is as vain and empty as the idols that one might conceive with their minds or hold in their hands. It is all an imagination. I don't mean it's harmless imagination. It's wicked imagination. But it's an imagination. 
Now let's stop there. Listen, because of what I just said, let's pause. Today, the whole realm of worldly religion, I've been saying it, and modern evangelical practice is doing what I'm saying here Paul is addressing as though it's a good thing. That's how people live today. That's how the most of the substance of American so-called Christianity, they're living like this today. They're living like this. And they believe this is a good thing. This is a good thing. They would swiftly show Chloe and her people the door. They would swiftly show Chloe and her people the door. They would make sure to cut her off before she gets to the apostle. To make sure that they can give their side of it. But let me say this plainly, in very plain English. This is bad. This is wicked. It is satanic and sinful what is happening here. To pit those in any way who serve Christ against one another is wicked. To allow it. Because like I said, Paul could have allowed it. His name was in the middle of it. He could have said, well, just belong to my faction. And that's fine. But no, it's, it's just as wicked when his name is involved. And you see that all throughout the New Testament where the apostles are deflecting praise away from themselves. Because they want all the praise, glory and honor to go to Christ. Ask yourself, why is that not happening today? Ask yourself that question. Why is it not happening? For the most part. But I'll tell you what it is. It's called personality cultism. It is cult of personality. You normally see it in the governments. You see it throughout history with despotic rulers. But you now see it as a virtue in the life of the modern evangelical church. And you see it also in the realm of all religion. You certainly see it in the realm of society. But Paul's not really here that concerned with society versus the church. He wants the church to be purged of this very thing. You'll see that throughout this letter as well. Listen, it was not Paul, Apollos, Peter or Christ who were guilty. For Christ is worthy of all worship and each of the other men served him faithfully. Peter, Apollos and Paul served him faithfully. They served Christ. They were not in faction against Christ. They didn't go out and minister in such a way so that the people could line up with them and not line up with Christ. In fact, I believe they could care less if the people lined up with the other men at all. They just simply wanted people to be in Christ because that's what the, that's what godly men want. That's what believers want. What godly men and women want are for people to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's it. And now we have the means on how to do that. But that's not what the world wants. The world wants to line up behind every single fad, faction, group, collective, idea, social movement, religious order, anything to lend itself to certain status. That's what the world wants. But that's not what Christians want. True Christians. That's not what we want. We want people to serve Christ faithfully. That's it. That's it. And then the means to do that is through scripture, through the word of God being proclaimed and put into practice, studied through prayer, through gathering together and displaying the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given in such a way to ensure that these things are taking place.
But each of those who brought this division in the Corinthian church, as I've said, tried to make it seem as though these men were divided. And that each of them were divided against one another. So consequently, when you do that, those who were lined up behind their head were also divided. So if you're lined up behind Peter, if you're lined up behind Paul or Apollos, you're divided against each other as you look down the lines. It is why it, it, is, it is a strange thing. I mean, let's just be honest about it. It is a strange thing that these factions even exist where we are, where we fellowship. They're here. It's the same thing. And people can't even look at each other the straight way because they're so busy calling out where they attend as if they belong to some kind of gang. And as if that gang has a certain credibility because of who's in charge of it. But I'm here to tell you if Christ isn't the head of it, it explains why you talk the way you do. It explains why you see it the way you do. And it explains you only need to call out something like that when it's illegitimate. It explains why the illegitimacy bothers them the way it does. My identification is in Christ. I'm thankful for where I fellowship. But my identification is in Christ. It's in Christ. I don't need to shout out all the particular programs that we have to make us seem superior to the other faction down the street because I'm in Christ. I want to do it his way. So when it comes time to shout him out, I shout him out from the scripture. I say, oh, this is what we teach. This is what we stand for. This is what we do. This is our sanctifying means. This is what saves, grows. And so you see here, they were not for this, and so Paul had to address it. While today it has certainly been normalized, it's not normal, but it has been normalized, yet still just as sinful to do this type of thing, it was Paul who squashed this. And I'm going to tell you how he squashed it. He squashed it by simply going to the point. And he went to this point among these individuals. Who was crucified for them? Who was crucified for them? Because you have some people today, they'll speak as mere men as if those men were crucified for them. But I'm telling you, that is how you get to the root cause of the issue. Who was crucified for you? So when people begin to speak that way, you should ask them that question. I believe it's a good either moment to uh, to uh, to exhort if need be, to rebuke if need be, to witness if need be. Because we don't believe in the papacy, evangelical or otherwise. We don't believe in that. So I think we have to start asking people who, who was crucified for you. Is it the guy who stands there on Sunday and speaks? Has he been crucified for you? Because since those people won't say it, Paul said it for himself, we probably have to ask those questions. But Paul, he began with that question. And I think it's profound that he began there. Look at what he says in 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? He doesn't say was Peter crucified. He doesn't get target practice and keep the division going and start mentioning. He starts with himself. Okay, I have a faction. So the faction has to be on the basis for what I've done for you eternally. And it has to be on the basis of salvation and me giving you salvation. But guess what? I haven't done that. I haven't been crucified for you. So why are you worshiping me? He starts with himself. 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Listen, Paul treated the Corinthians in the most godly way. I'm going to tell you how. He was among them. He saw himself as among them. He saw himself as a fellow heir. They weren't his customers. He didn't work for them. But he was their fellow servant. All of them servants together. He had not vicariously atoned for their sins on the cross and had not lived a perfect sinless life. Or nor did he offer himself to satisfy God's wrath. Do you remember when we were in Romans and I said how important it was for Paul to point to the fact that he had not always been a believer? It keeps humility before himself and the people. He's not dragging their minds through the mud in testimony time, but he's saying, I, I, I wasn't always. And he's shouting them out in the last chapter of Romans. These were Christians before me. Praise God for them. We all have our gifts. But they were Christians before me. I'm thankful for them. I haven't always been a believer. I was I didn't come to faith uh, when I was four. Because that's what people want you to think so that you can join the faction based on what they're saying, based on the lies that they're saying. But Paul is saying, I, I, I wasn't raised for your justification. That's the implication of his statement. I wasn't raised. In fact, I'm mortal on this side of I will die. And I need to be in Christ as much as you need to be in Christ. But listen, all this can be said about Apollos and Peter. They weren't raised for the justification of the Corinthians. They weren't crucified on the cross uh, as a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath on behalf of the Corinthians. So why are you lining up behind them today? Why are people lining up behind these men? They weren't crucified for you. And listen, Christ was not set against Peter, Apollos or Paul. He was not set against them. They were his joint heirs. They were the ones who worshipped him. And Christ provided eternal life for them. Christ was not set against Peter, Apollos, or Paul, or those who worshiped Christ as a result of the fruit of their reasonable ministry before Christ. He was not set against them. He was not set against the people who tried to line up behind them. He wasn't. Paul brought them, Paul brought them all before Christ, and Christ brought them all together in salvation. But as I say, Paul resolved this conflict by going to salvation matters. He went to the crucifixion, the cross work of Christ, because when it comes to this partiality, the spirit of hero worship that he was trying to dethrone and hero worship doesn't necessarily always have to find its place in an actual man. It can find its place in institutions. But this hero worship, he goes to the cross work of Christ. Do we appreciate and honor things in their appropriate place? Yes. But that, as I said, and you'll see it here in Corinthians. When Paul brings this back up in chapter three, the honor is always mutual. I honor you. And guess what happens? You honor me. It's always mutual. It's not just this one way fanning the flames and me practicing this pseudo form of humility and self-deprecation where I say, oh, you guys shouldn't have. And you always do. It's always you honoring me and I'm honoring you. Praise God for you. No, praise God for you. 
I thank God for you. I thank God for that sermon you preached. I thank God for that sermon. Well, I thank God for his sanctifying work in you. It's always honoring each other back and forth, stirring up love in one another. It's not, well, hey, I honor you because you preach well and you saying, well, I know I do. Name this whole building after me. Because that is what is happening in the life of the church so-called today. And we're calling it honor. But it's not mutual. Because most of these guys don't even know who you are. But Paul knew who these people were. He knew his people. He knew the Lord's people. He didn't say, Chloe, who are you? Where are you from? Corinth. Never been to Corinth. Just write letters to Corinth. He was intimately invested and involved in the life of the church whom Christ had paid the price for and whom Christ was the head. A lot of people want a ministry scope that expands, but they don't want to be intimately involved with that ministry scope, do they? They just want people to line up behind their names. And I'm talking about all of them. I don't want anyone to get the impression I'm only talking about one or two. I'm talking about all of them. Some I don't even know exist. Because I think this passage takes us there. I think it takes us there. But he literally goes to the crossword. The source of salvation being Christ and the hope of our salvation being Christ. You only line up behind people when you lose sight of that. When you think they're the source and hope of your salvation. Well, that's called deception. Verse 13, he was he also went to baptism. Has Christ been divided? And then at the very end, he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Look at 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you because what he's trying to say essentially is there wouldn't be any other factions. Because if you based it on baptism, you'd say, well, Paul was certainly intimately involved in my life because he baptized me. And he says, I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Well, here I see a vindication of Crispus and Gaius because they didn't think like the other Corinthians thought. He's saying I baptized them. And the implication is they're not boasting in the factions. He was after them in this area because, listen to this, the symbolic act of baptism was to be immersed in Christ. He's saying you would mistake that for being immersed in me, to be hidden in me, Paul is saying. And it was to bear testimony of one's salvation in him, in Christ alone, but also to openly identify. This is why we're baptized by immersion, to openly identify with Christ as Lord, King and Redeemer. So Paul is saying, I thank God. That in this area. I only baptized these two and the household of Stephanie says, I'll get to As such, then, Paul was saying he did not come to be the one who immersed in whom people were immersed. He didn't want people to immerse themselves in him. So he's now clearing the air as to why I did baptism there to begin with. But also there was and is only unity in Christ as Christ himself is unified. Christ is not divided. It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is Christ is not divided. He's unified. If you're divided, you're not in Christ. If your allegiances are divided, you're not the one who unites people's allegiances to himself. So just as he is, listen to this, Christ is unified in his own person and being. Just as he is in oneness, 
in being with Father and Holy Spirit. Oneness in being with Father and Holy Spirit. Same God. So that's where Paul's going. He's going to the Godhead. Yes, distinct in personhood. Yes, but one in being in essence with the Godhead. So Paul is saying that Christ is not divided. He's not divided against the people who serve him. And he's not divided against Father and Holy Spirit. And yet they are one in purpose, one in will. So then Paul did not come to provide a baptism. This is important. A baptism distinct from John the Baptist, so to speak. He didn't come for that purpose, nor distinct from the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. It's why he's speaking of baptism. He's saying the baptism I offer is not distinct from the baptism of the prophets, nor is it distinct from the baptism Christ received when we're talking about Christ. But when I baptize you, it is in a sense to demonstrate your salvation and then to demonstrate your identification with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he went there to show them that they were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not Peter, not Paul, not Apollos or anyone else. They were immersed in Christ, Christ living in them and through them. And so he alone was and is worthy of their worship. As I mentioned, he, he mentions two people. I've said it. And a household, Crispus and Gaius, because Paul did baptize them with his hands. And he did want to identify with them because they were his brothers. But he didn't want to boast in them belonging to his faction. They belonged to Christ. That's the point he's making. And he says it in verse 15 explicitly so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. He says, I baptized them in the name of Christ. I didn't baptize any of you. But thankfully, none of you can say I was baptized in your name, because had I done that, you would have said that to this point where we are. He also mentions the household of Stephanus. Look at the language he uses, too. That essentially he baptized the way the implication is he baptized them. But they were not they were baptized by Paul, not in Paul and not for Paul. If you were to look at the language, you would see that they baptized by him, but not in him and not for him. So you have to ask people, we have to ask ourselves, for whom were you baptized? In whom were you baptized? Not simply by whom, but in whom and for whom. That takes us all the way back to the start of our very confession of faith and how we found ourselves in the body of Christ. Demonstrating, not saving us, but demonstrating our salvation. You have to ask this question. The tendency that is running rampant, like an uncontrollable virus, I call it, is to unduly exalt men in their personality cults. And I believe that you have to ask those who are joined this way the baptism question and the crucifixion question. I believe that that is where it's going. For whom were you baptized? And for whom were you uh, were, uh, and who, who was crucified for you and uh, for whom were you baptized? It is an issue related to the doctrine of salvation. Listen, Christ sent Paul. Christ sent Paul. 
Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. So Christ sent them to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void or nullified. Christ sent Paul. So that puts an end to the fantasy factions because Christ sent them. So what is the purpose of having a Christ faction and a Paul faction? And then what is the purpose of having factions all along when all the men belong to Christ? And that's what Paul will go to next when we look at this. When it when it when it begins to rage in chapter three, Paul actually says that. But the fairy tale idolatry some people in Corinth created, Paul needed to destroy. Because it needed to be understood that Christ sent Paul to them. It was not to elicit or receive worship of men, but it was in step with the actual Great Commission. I say the actual Great Commission because we have a lot of that today. A lot of people talking about the Great Commission and then building it around factions. These nuances are very important. It was to preach the gospel. This is why he sent them. It was to preach the gospel in the power and clarity of the Holy Spirit. To be proclaimed and understood in the most simplest of terms. Paul's calling was not to nullify or void the power of the cross. And believe it or not, the counterpart to cleverness of speech is not folly. The counterpart to cleverness of speech, which is fleshly, is the wisdom of God. So one sounds clearer, more powerful when they're preaching in God's spirit, when they're exhorting in God's speaking in God's spirit. There's a there's a clarity because of God's spirit. So he was calling them not to understand his being sent to them as an apostle or his apostleship as being rooted in the cleverness of their age. He wasn't sent to nullify or avoid the power of the cross, but to lift up the cross in his preaching. And he was to do so in such a way so that it was on display at all times. He wanted it on display at all times, not just sometimes, at all times. And so we'll talk about that wisdom uh, of the word of the cross the next time we're together. Let's pray.